There's uh, probably no place that we can call home that's quite like Golden Isles. Uh, it is a joy. And um, just to give you a little bit of a, of a sense, uh, these last months have been really full. Debbie and I are going to try to unpack the, uh, the fullness of our last uh, few months and probably our next year uh, more tomorrow. But we'll give you a little, few little touches and tastes of it uh, in the next few minutes. But what I want to do is actually take you to a portion of scripture. It is um, thankfully printed for you in your, in your brochures. And um, I'm going to take it backwards. I, I know that's not always the way that you ought to read a text, but I'm actually going to take it backwards. I don't mean, com- I don't mean that completely literally, but I'm going to do the second half before I do the first half. And there's a reason for that. I want us to look at the impact Uh, and come to the conclusion that God brings us to at the end of this text and allow that to be the point of departure where we look at our own lives in the light of of the text. And then we back it up and ask, what is it that God used to move this forward? And that's what we'll look at on on Sunday. But I want to start by looking at the second half of the text, which is... um, actually on the second page. Uh, And so look at that uh, where Saul begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. I want to read that and just ask that you would follow. You know what uh, comes in the beginning of that, and that's the conversion of Saul. And so I want to pick up on just that particular part. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by the night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. and They were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I'm not sure if you were to turn the clock back in your lives, if you could think of all the churches that you have sat in or visited, Uh, but I've got an idea that the diversity of churches that collectively we've been in would be pretty astonishing, especially if I could add mine. 
uh, to yours. Um, I've sat under a tree, uh, and that was church. I've sat in a building that was only half covered with a tin roof, and uh, regrettably, our, we couldn't keep our dog at home, and so he sat in the front row. Um, and uh, that was the same church that uh, when you brought your offering, sometimes it laid an egg uh, because your offering was a chicken. <laughs> and the chicken had to be dispensed with after the service was over. I've been in a worship service probably very much like what you've seen on the screen. When I was in Burundi and had the opportunity to there worship with refugees. So there's been all kinds of places. Been in Sudan. Uh, Debbie could multiply many more places where she's worshipped. Strange places. But I've also, in the last few years since I've been in Asia, I have worshipped in congregations that had in excess of 5,000 seats. And uh, in that particular place, they have four worship services, and they pack it out. So you figure their congregation is someplace in excess of 20,000. And uh, they take over a mall. In fact, they own the mall, and they simply have the top three stories. That's Asia. So when you think about the church of Jesus Christ... You may think about a small tree and you might think about a few people that are gathered there and some goats and chickens, but also think about parts of Asia that are just unbelievable numbers and where you actually freeze when you go in because the AC is turned up so high that you need to bring your jacket just to stay warm. And we have churches actually here in the U.S. that... Um, have been large, and I've been in some mega churches here in the U.S. Probably you have too. And maybe like me, you've been in some churches that have had some really significant programs. And if you think back on some of those significant churches and significant programs with often significant money, then you ask, well, do they still have that program? Are they still supporting missions in the same way? And some of them are. And some of them are not. Now, why not? Well, actually, I know a number that began enormous building programs because they had so many people, just like the Asian church I talked about where they had 5,000 seats. Sooner or later, the air conditioning system breaks down. And when it breaks down, you know what you got to do? You gotta fix it. And it just cuts a huge hole in your budget if you don't continue to have the same numbers of people. So when we think about the church and its growth and its expansion, building buildings is sort of an American phenomenon. And it doesn't look like that in very many other parts of the world. But church growth is something that we also talk about, and we have our own plans for it. We come together in a missions conference. If you ask the question, how does the church grow? And we see a film like this. You say, well, how do you grow a church 
when the people who are coming are the bottom of society. The sewage cleaners, the brick makers. How do you sustain a church? How do you build a church? We don't. Not a building. You just build the people. So our plans for building a church, for building God's church, sort of look different when you get to different places. We've gone through in the U.S. the megachurch idea. We've gone through the seeker-friendly idea. We've, sometimes we, we have schools. Sometimes we have house churches. Sometimes we want to deal with the community and pick up community concerns, and that's going to build it. We have programs. Some churches have huge programs, a lot of programs. And now we've got this movement back away from programs where churches say, no, no, it's not about the program. We're not going to have programs. You can find all these different kinds of things. And, and the idea is, well, we're looking for the way to build God's church. And it seems like every year there's a new way of doing it. So I want to bring you back to what I want to call God's AC expansion system. And it's not air conditioning. It's just not about air conditioning. Um, that might be important in a lot of places. Uh, and I'll tell you, a really hot day in Asia is really hot. Really happy for the air conditioning. But that's not really what builds the church. The text here tells us how God intends to build this church. And you saw it on the screen. And if you got inside of that at all, you say, I'm not sure that I would have the stuff to be in a church in Pakistan. We've had a Pakistani believer in our international house. And she does share. She's brilliant. Somehow she managed to get an education, but she had to leave Pakistan to do it. Yes, she's a woman and she's a Christian. And she was the lowest of the low. But God's not done. He doesn't abandon his church. So what does he do? How does he build it? That's exactly what the text shows. So look at that last verse that's highlighted in blue, and that's where we're going to start. The church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Remember when, when Jesus was ascended, he commissioned his disciples, and he told them where they were going to go? Well, here it is again. Throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the church there had peace and it was being built up. It was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were what I want to call God's signs and wonders. Now, signs and wonders is another way that a lot of people think are going to grow the church. If we just have enough signs and wonders, special events of God, the church is going to grow. That's why I love this ninth chapter of Acts. You know, there's no speaking in tongues. There's no healing. There's just an awful lot of persecution. And in the midst of the persecution, God reaches down and he transforms the hardest heart 
And everybody stands back and says, I don't believe it. It can't be. But it was. God had touched Saul's life. It wasn't a momentarily shift of his perspective. It wasn't a plot or a ploy to where he could find the center of the Christian movement. Instead, it was deeper than his own heart. And he had to change. And he did change. That was God's wonder. So when you travel down the road, as we have again today, and as we do every day, and you see these signs that say, men at work, your fine is doubled if you're caught speeding in this zone. Ask yourself, what happens when God is at work and I'm speeding by? And don't stop to take notice. So the sign is about God at work. Not man at work, but God at work. And here it is. When we think about God at work, the, the fear that's there is not the fear of cowering and of fleeing. That's not the word that's used here. The idea is awe. And that's my A for the AC. It's the awe of God. Standing and recognizing only God can do this. And it's approaching it. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege to go to a, just a, an awe-inspiring place, sort of like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I don't suggest that you do what my son Jesse tends to do. He likes to go right to the edge of the longest, deepest precipice and just dangle his toes over the edge. I know it makes you think, who in their right mind would do that? Well, we wonder that too. He's probably not his right mind. But for him, that's the joy of it. It's the, he, just, he embraces the awesomeness. Who but God? We don't run in fear. We embrace the incredible enormity of what God has done. So what was happening amongst the disciples? When they see Paul, their first impulse was to run. It was fear of Paul. It was cowering. This is the man. This is the man that has brought us persecution, has brought us death, has brought us pain. Run. Don't trust him. Oh, Brother Barnabas says no. Actually, something's different about this man. Listen to him. And Paul, Saul, boldly proclaimed that transformation. So the awe of what God had done came over God's people. They thought, if God can do this, if God can do this, then we can walk forward. We can embrace what it is that he will do. Can you imagine being in Pakistan with that sense of awe? I don't know if you picked up the last words 
that yes, we feel persecuted. But God, but God, but God is with us. Pray that we will be encouraged and stand firm. That is how the church grows. It's not because we have air conditioning. <laughs> it's, it's because we have persecution. And in the midst of the persecution, we reach out and we say, Lord, what is my, what is my hold? Where, where are my feet standing? God says, they stand on the rock. They stand on me. I will hold you. And God's people are held in awe. Paul heard God. He saw and he understood God in his own life. And he changed direction. God calls you and he calls me in the same sense. If we're going to have an awe of God, it's the same way. It's not the seeing and the feeling of some great blessing, some blessing that is measured in terms of prosperity and ease or abundance. That's not it. It's seeing the hardness of hearts that are softened. It's seeing closed doors locked tight that are opened. It's seeing turbulence that's turned into peace. So you ask the question, God, why do I have this turbulence in my life? Well, that's why. Because if you didn't have it, if I didn't have it, I wouldn't see God. I wouldn't know his hand. The things that he brings to our lives is so that we can't look anywhere else. If he gives us ease, he gives us the gentleness, everything works. I don't need God. But when things are impossible, then I reach out. I recognize I need him. Isn't it so that when you rub up against somebody that's walked long in Christ, it seems like so often the things that should have become gentle and simple and somehow aren't gentle and simple anymore. There's more pain. But God has entered that pain and he changes the pain into something different. That's the awesome work of God. And we stand in awe of that. We don't run away from it. We embrace it. And when God's people did that, they walked so we use a struggle. God uses struggle. But the second part of this verse is also there. They were not only walking in the fear of the Lord, but in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So the comfort, again, was not an ease. It wasn't a pleasure. It wasn't something that was, you know, just making life nice. But it was the change. Think for a moment about the very tools that Paul used. I mean, the tools of his persecution. Probably things like mistrust, power. I mean, we know he used power. He came with letters. But part of that power was betrayal. Typically the kind of things that we see and we saw in this film, but, but behind the persecution of the church is often this deep sense of betrayal where one person can turn another person in and say, you know so-and-so, 
They're followers of Jesus. And it's that betrayal that takes our Christian witness and turns it against us. Sometimes the betrayal is by family members. Much of the Middle East is torn by that today. In the very grip of where the worst form of Islam is, families. Fathers can covenant together and determine to wear down the faith and the belief of their sons and daughters if they're not following in the footsteps of Muhammad the prophet. And not just wear them down, but wear them to death. Betrayal. Paul used betrayal. It's used today. So the persecuted church has always known betrayal. They've always known the pangs of fear. They've always known power. How does God use that power? How does he turn it around? Well, God's not the author of pain. He's not the author of persecution. But he uses the darkness. And when he sees the darkness and when he allows us to be in the darkness is when his light begins to shine. Sometimes, as we have read here, God changed Saul. He changed the heart of Paul. But he doesn't always do that. Sometimes God reaches into the heart of his people, people like you and me, and he changes us because we need to understand comfort and we need to bring comfort. And when we walk in the presence of the Holy Spirit, God gives comfort. What does it look like? I want to take you to Congo. No, I'm going to ask Debbie. She's here. I'm going to ask her to take you to Congo. There's a pastor, but I won't tell the story. I'll let her tell it. It's the work of the church to not only have to stand in awe of God, but also to bring the comfort. I'm wired. Now you're wired. So last August, this past August, I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo where I brought back these outfits that Carl and I are wearing and that your children loved, by the way, in the, in the class with them. But while I was there, uh, we had a workshop for pastors and their wives and church members to talk about strengthening marriages. You know, Congo is a rough place. There's Ebola, which you have probably heard about, and the church has a very significant role in helping to dispel some of the fear and stigma surrounding Ebola, to encourage hand washing, to encourage proper burials and prevention of the spread of that disease in the community. There's also a tremendous amount of conflict with a lot of different groups and subgroups gaining and seeking power and control from at least three different nations right around and the militia that have formed. This is an ongoing civil war for many years now. And some communities have just, even the week I was there, had their homes um, in nearby communities completely raised with fire and women kidnapped and children. 
it's a very perilous place. So with all of this conflict, with all of this strife, these pastors came together with their wives and they began to realize as we searched the scriptures that first of all, in their own relationships, the seed of violence takes root. There's a tremendous amount of gender-based violence in that nation. And whether it's verbal or nonverbal, it can be such a scar on the church to see that people are not respecting and honoring women as equals before God, as made um, in the image of God. And there has been so much uh, discord in families. So at this workshop, not based on focus on the family or any other uh, very worthy endeavors that are US-based, but right from their own lives and hearts themselves and God's truth. Just opening God's truth, it's all there. Pastors and their wives began to see, uh, and members of the church, how the gospel does penetrate, how women are to be honored and sacrificed for and loved and respected, of how communication is critical in marriage, of how uh, sexuality as God intended in the Bible is beautiful and wonderful and treasured and for marriage only. All of these issues are just so exuding in the scriptures. So as we talked and wrestled and began to develop these themes uh, that emerged out of the lives of these individuals, there were 10, 10 couples, and God's truth was open before us. The spirit began to transform. And at the end, at the end of that week, after we had developed a storyline and the manuals, some of them are over there, the Congo one is now actually being translated and printed, uh, but other countries are represented on the table there. Um, at the end, the, the wives and the husbands were meeting around and talking about what the week had been to them. At the very end, Pastor Fabian stood to his feet and he asked his wife to stand. And he was the leader of a whole group of pastors. We might call it a presbytery. It's a church empowerment zone or an area where all different churches come together and share. He was the lead pastor. And he looked at his wife and he said, I have failed you. I have not loved you as myself. I have not treated you as an equal made in God's image. Please forgive me. That was a valuable, valuable lesson for each pastor there, for each woman there, to realize that yes, there might be conflict outside, but the spirit of God and his truth will transform and begin right in our own homes. So Pastor Fabian, God called to give comfort and to be comfort in the midst of a persecuted church. Understand that what you saw is true for much of the world, what we might call the majority world, and therefore the majority church. It's about understanding that the place that God puts us is a difficult place. And we have to stand in awe of him. But when we stand in awe of him, he says, I want you to be my comfort to each other and receive my comfort. And that's what the church did. They walked in the comfort 
of the Holy Spirit. Church growth. God brought peace. Let me just review how he did that. This AC expansion, the awe and comfort, it's shared not through social media. You, you did get that. <laughs> there, there's no, you know, there wasn't Facebook here. Uh, there wasn't a Twitter account. They didn't tweet it. They didn't tweet it. How was it? Was, I guess it's tweeting, not tweeting. Um, they spoke it. They lived it from person to person. Sometimes we'd like to make our faith very personal. You know, I, I look at this and I think God's awe and comfort was not private. It was public. And Pastor Fabian made it public. And frankly, it's not done. It's not done in honor-shame societies where you get a leading pastor that stands up in public, asks his wife to stand up, and says, I have failed you. Absolutely not done. Unless you're walking in the awe and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Unless you expect to see the church grow, then you do it in public as Pastor Fabian did. God's awe, God's comfort multiplied the church. You know, it's interesting. There are church growth people who want to say, well, Pentecost was the time in which God added 3,000 people in a day. And he used these wonderful signs and wonders. And we try to build our church growth on signs and wonders come to this ninth chapter and I said, this is an incredible sign and wonder. It's not about adding. It's about multiplying. I never did very well in math. And you might not have either. But there's a big difference between adding and multiplying. Here, it multiplied through awe and comfort. Let me just ask you a very simple question. Look at your life. Ask what God is holding in front of you. Take the pain. Take the turbulence. And then ask yourself, how you've handled it. Has it brought you, as it were, to the edge of the precipice in awe? Recognizing that only God is sufficient. Can you enter, as we saw on the screen, the life of the persecuted church and pray with them? Surely, only God. And then stand forward and say, yes. It is with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily that the pain is going to be removed, because it might not be. But the comfort of the Holy Spirit remains. 
And what we know about the church in Acts was that the peace, let me put it a different way, the turbulence around them was temporarily lifted. But they were never free of persecution. And God multiplied the church. That's his plan. I don't think it matters whether it's his plan in Africa or in Asia or in the U.S. We have different turbulence. We have different forms of darkness. But we have the same Holy Spirit, the same God. And he comes to us and he says, embrace it. Take hold and call me awesome and receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You, brothers and sisters, are God's light. And the church will grow at the speed of your light. You are the light bearers. I want to pray for you. Father, who alone in heaven or on earth is there but you? Surely you have known our weakness. Surely, Father, you have known. And yet, you bring us into situations again and again that are way beyond us. We would yearn to be removed from them. But you place us there. And you place your people around the world there in persecution, in trials, in difficulties, in places where pain, where death, where powers are stretched against them. And you call all of us to adore you, to look at the magnificence of your presence, and to recognize that there is no way that we can stand apart from your presence. And then to receive from you the comfort of your Holy Spirit by which we may be comforted and comfort others. So, Father, would you put upon our mouths tonight that comfort that we might know what it means to encourage each other, to turn each other's eyes upon you, for we need not cower we need not run. We can stand. And then, Father, shine your light. It's your light. Multiply that light in every dark place. The places where we pray for and where you have placed your servants. The places where you take our feet and have them walk. Loosen our lips. Lift our hands that we might be your letters to a world in darkness. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.